this is, this is legendary. You know that, don't you? Summerfest. Uh, I mean, we've, we heard about all the way in Texas uh, about Summerfest and uh, these crazy people that live up in Kingsburg, they meet out in the heat, you know, by the river and, and battle the mosquitoes and, and they just, they love the word of God. And so they just want to come together and, and hear the word of God taught. And so uh, we're so glad we could be up here and get a little reprieve from the heat in Houston. Just kidding. It's about the same. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it is a, a joy to be here. We've heard such wonderful things uh, over the years about, about your church. And of course, we love your pastor, Scott. We served uh, together years ago back at Grace Community Church uh, down in Los Angeles. And uh, he was the college pastor. I was the high school pastor. And uh, we had a lot of fun together with our offices being right next door to, to each other. And so uh, I know that you guys are uh, being encouraged and blessed by his ministry of the word here and so um, tonight, what I'd like to do, and by way of wrapping up this, this series that you've been uh, going through on Tell, Tell Me the Old, Old Story, is I want to talk about hope in the gospel. And what does it mean to, to live every day in light of God's grace? And in order to do that, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at just four verses tonight, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Let me read the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. Paul writing to Titus, he says here, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to, to open it up and read it and to study it tonight and to, to seek to apply it to our lives and Lord, we know we need your Spirit's help. And so we ask, Lord, that the Spirit would come now and illuminate our minds that we might understand what Paul was saying here to Titus and how it applies to our lives today. Lord, that we would not just be merely hearers of the word tonight, but doers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I appreciate the wisdom of the leadership of your church to uh, plan a series designed to retell and remind you of the old, old story, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and one of the dangers of being a part of a church like Grace Church of the Valley and like Lakeside Bible Church in Texas, uh, churches that are committed to, to equipping the saints by preaching and teaching uh, the whole counsel of God, the danger is that sometimes the gospel can be forgotten. I'm sure many of you actually come to this church because you don't just want to hear the gospel rehashed every Sunday, like it is in a lot of churches where that's all they ever talk about on Sundays is the gospel. And so people really never get past the gospel, they never, they never grow, and they never mature in their faith. And if you're a mature Christian who studied the Bible for any length of time, uh, you, you probably consider the gospel uh, a basic concept. It's the ABCs of Christianity. In fact, when the gospel is preached in a sermon, you might even just tune it out because you think, you know, you're beyond that. 
That's something that you heard years ago and you applied years ago. It doesn't apply to you today. Uh, you assume it's something that's, that, 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 that unbelievers need to hear. And yet we need to understand that the gospel is something that we can never leave behind and that actually it's something that we as believers need to hear often. Too many of us, I think, fail to realize that the gospel plays a vital role in our lives as Christians. And uh, I'm sure you're aware that uh, in, in recent years, there's been an increasing number of, of books written uh, addressing the role that the gospel should play in the daily lives of, of every Christian. One of my favorite authors is, is a guy named Jerry Bridges. I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, written a, a series of books, uh, really probably more uh, than anyone else I know, uh, on this subject of, 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 of preaching the gospel to yourself. Are you familiar with that concept preaching the gospel yourself well as far as i can tell this is something that was coined by jerry bridges and and and, and through his series of books the pursuit of holiness and transforming grace and the discipline of grace and the transforming power of the gospel and and my favorite little book that he just wrote uh in recent years is called the bookends of the christian life anybody read that read that book yet the bookends of the christian life great little little resource uh where he just summarizes uh, pretty much everything he's written uh, over the years regarding this concept of preaching the gospel to yourself as a Christian. Now, let me just read for you a, a brief quote from that book. Bridges says this, For many of us, our initial encounter with the gospel when we first, uh, with the gospel when we first trusted Christ occurred many years ago and is now a distant memory. The Christian life may now be more of a duty than a joyous response to the gospel. That's why we need to intentionally bathe our minds and hearts in the gospel every day. We need the gospel not only as a door into an initial saving relationship with Christ, but also to keep our daily lives from becoming a performance treadmill. I don't know if you ever feel that way uh, as a Christian, that you're just kind of on this treadmill and it's all about your performance. And, uh, and, and, and what Bridges points out is, is that after coming to know Christ, many Christians have a tendency to, to move from the gospel and, and begin to relate to God uh, on the basis of their performance of certain spiritual duties, like having your quiet time and, and going to church and sharing the gospel uh, with unbelievers, rather than on the basis of the finished work of Christ on their behalf. And he, ha- he talks about the good day, bad day, uh, scenario that on good days when when we successfully fulfill all of our duties our spiritual duties we feel good about our relationship with God as if we've earned his favor and that God is delighted with us but then we have those bad days where we miss our quiet time and uh, we miss church or we miss that opportunity to witness and we're overwhelmed with guilt and we feel like God is disappointed with us And I think the key to keep us from falling into this good day, bad day thinking is never forgetting that our acceptance before God is not based on what we do or don't do on any given day, but on what Christ has already done for us on the cross. Amen? We need to remind ourselves every day that we are accepted by God on the sole basis of His obedient life and His sacrificial death. We must regularly ponder God's amazing love for us and that even though we are His enemies who deserve nothing but death and hell, He poured out His wrath against our sin on His beloved Son, Jesus, and He declared us righteous. 
We were justified, which means that all of our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven at the cross, and there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. That sounds good, doesn't it? And what's more, I think nothing, we need to remember this, nothing we do or don't do can change our position in Christ or make God love us any more or any less than when he chose us for salvation in eternity past. You'll never, you'll never be more loved by God than you were when he chose you for salvation before the foundation of the earth. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news. Can you say amen to that? This is good news of the gospel. And, and Paul loved to talk about the gospel. In fact, I love what he said to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, al- which also you received, in which also you stand. Notice it wasn't just something, the gospel wasn't just something in Paul's mind for the Corinthians past, it was for, the, for their present. And he goes on to talk about how, he says, By also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he just shares uh, really a capsule, the gospel in a capsule form there. But notice he, he, he refers to it as, as of first importance. In other words, the gospel is the most important truth that defines who we are as Christians. It, it defines how we think, how we feel, how we act as Christians. And the gospel is not only the foundation of the Christian life, it is the fuel of the Christian life. It's what keeps us going. It's what sustains us in our Christian life. And yet, and yet too many of us, I think, view the gospel as just the first step of the Christian life. And we leave it behind after salvation. We get saved and then we get to work. And at the start, we all acknowledged, I trust, that there is nothing that we can do to earn a right standing before God. But then we end up trying to maintain our standing before God by what we do. And we fall prey to the same error that the Galatian Christians uh, fell into. You'll remember in Galatians chapter 3, Paul confronted them. He said, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We all know that we're saved by grace through faith alone. But why do we often think and act like we can be sanctified by our own good works. Now granted, the Bible makes it very clear that sanctification involves a lot of hard work. Would you agree? Lots of passages in the scriptures that talk about disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness and pursuing holiness. But we need to remember that we are just as dependent on God's grace for our sanctification as we were for our salvation. We would never have come to Christ apart from God's grace and we'll never grow in Christ apart from God's grace. Again, Bridges in 
in his book, The Discipline of Grace, said it this way, the pursuit of holiness or sanctification must be motivated by an ever-increasing understanding of the grace of God. Or else it can become oppressive and joyless. The pursuit of holiness must be anchored in the grace of God. Otherwise, it is doomed to failure. Now, having said all that, we come to our text tonight, Titus chapter 2. And I think what Paul was doing here is he was wanting to keep the Christians on the island of Crete where he was writing to Titus, who was overseeing and supervising the, the planting of churches there and the growing of churches there on the island of Crete. He, he was wanting to keep those believers from failing in their pursuit of holiness. And so he, he explained to them in this text the role that God's grace played in transforming them and enabling them to live godly lives that make the gospel look good in a bad world. That's really the theme of the book of Titus. It's, it's how to live a godly life that makes the gospel look good in a bad world. And so he wanted them to know that the same grace that had saved them is the same grace that sanctified them. In other words, grace is the key to living the kind of life that he just got done describing, for example, in verses 1 through 10. And if you just look back at the context here, you're familiar with this text, I'm sure, where, where Paul outlined just the, the various character qualities and responsibilities of older men and older women and, 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 and younger women and younger men and even bond slaves or employees. We could make that application today. Uh, these are, this is how they were to live their lives. And so he breaks down every person in the church and every age category and he says, this is how you are to live your life. And notice verse 10. He says, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In other words, God's grace makes it possible to behave like believers and in so doing adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, make God look good and make His Word look good. And then he goes on in these next four verses, verses 11 through 14, he, he just expands on that phrase, the doctrine of God our Savior, by giving this in-depth description of the transforming power of God's grace in the lives of believers. Notice that word there at the beginning of verse 11. It's the word for. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That word for links what he's about to say in verses 11 to 14 with what he just got done saying. This is sort of a purpose clause. In other words, this is the reason why we should do the things that he just said we should do in verses 1 through 10. Or maybe even better, this is the reason we can do these things. We can do them by the grace of God. And so God's grace provides the means by which we live godly lives as older men, as older women, as younger women, as younger men, as employees. And if you're familiar with Paul's uh, writings, you know that, that Paul had a particular style in which he wrote. He, he would typically start by laying a theological foundation followed by the practical implications. It's what's referred to as the indicative imperative motif. Some of you have, I'm sure, heard of that phrase. The indicatives are just statements of, of fact. This is what Christ has done for you. And then the imperatives are, okay, now this is what you need to do as a result. These are the duties. These are the, the commands. And so we need to, again, be careful to maintain this, this biblical balance between all that we need to do 
that we're commanded to do in Scripture and, and what Jesus has already done so that all we do for Christ will be done in response to and reliance on what Christ has done for us. And so what Paul does here is he just reverses that typical order. And and here he started with the practical duties in verses 1 through 10. And now he follows it up with the theological realities. And this is verses 11 through 14 is really one of the two masterful summations of theology by Paul in this letter. The other one is in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. We'll reference that in just a moment. But the focus of this, this first, what I like to call theological outburst, Paul was good at that, right? He's riding along of us and blah, he, just, he just goes off on some incredible uh, theological rabbit trail. And this is one of those. And, and this whole outburst is all about God's grace. Notice he says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Now, you could define God's grace very simply. It is God's undeserved, unearned kindness and favor towards helpless and hopeless sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath. I think that's a basic definition of God's grace. God's undeserved, unearned kindness and favor toward helpless and hopeless sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath. Now, when we think about God's grace, we typically think about God's grace as it relates to our what? Our salvation. But we need to realize, and this passage is going to show us that, that, that rescuing us from death and hell is really just the tip of the iceberg of what God's grace actually accomplishes in our lives. It, it has profound effects on our daily lives as believers long after we get saved. And I think this is the focus uh, of these four verses. And so uh, just if you're, I don't, you're probably not taking notes. It's too hot, right? Just, just give it to me, pastor, right? And, and so just, these are some simple thoughts to maybe hang, hang your, hang your, uh, what I'm going to say on. So f- basically here we, in this passage, I want you to see five transforming effects of the grace of God. Five transforming effects of the grace of God. What does God's grace do in our lives as Christians? Okay, number one, God's grace saves us. Okay, we know that. We've been talking about that. God's grace saves us. Notice he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That that has appeared means to appear suddenly, Kind of like the, the sun uh, coming up over the horizon and it just dispels the darkness at dawn. This phrase, has appeared, uh, is often used to describe divine intervention. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here, how God came to our rescue in the person of Jesus Christ who, who in his life, death, and resurrection, he personified the grace of God. He was the grace of God in person, in flesh, here on planet Earth. In fact, I love how Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, described the coming of Christ. He said it this way in Luke chapter 1. He said, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. That sunrise, capital S, was a reference to Jesus Christ. And so it says that, that for the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, uh, God had to bring salvation with him. Jesus had to bring salvation with him because we couldn't save ourselves. We, 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 the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, just look over to the, to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 4. And Paul says it this way, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind, what? 
appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then if you just turn back a couple pages to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says it this way, that, that, that we were saved, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So that's what Paul's talking about here. This appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ brought salvation. Notice it brought salvation to who? What does it say? To all men. You're like, wait a minute. Are you saying that everyone's going to be saved? Well, obviously Paul was not implying that everyone would be saved. That's what's called universalism, and that's a lie from the pit of hell. Not everyone is going to heaven. I think what Paul was doing here, he was simply highlighting the universal scope of the gospel and, and, and of salvation, that God sent his son not just to provide salvation for the Jews, right, but for the Gentiles, for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so in this first verse, we, we learn that, first of all, God's grace saves us, okay? God's grace saves us. Well, what else does God God's grace too. What other transforming effect does it have in our lives? Well, secondly, God's grace schools us. God's grace schools us. Notice verse 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Hopefully you're already seeing that that, that we're seeing a present tense here, something that's ongoing uh, in our lives. This is not just a one point in time, God's grace affects us, transforms us, and then stops working on us. No, it continues to do its work. And it instructs us, it says here, which uh, is, is the term for education here, which was often used to describe the training of a child by discipline. In other words, you teach your child, this is what you do, and if they don't do it, you discipline them. And, and we know that by His grace, God teaches us and trains us just like a parent does a child. Hebrews chapter 12, sometimes uh, He spanks us, right? If we disobey, if we dishonor Him, and we're truly His children, He'll discipline us. He'll spank us. And that's an act of grace. And so the same grace that reunites us with our Heavenly Father also educates us how to maintain our relationship with Him. Notice what he says. It instructs us, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. If you have a New International Version, I like what it says. It just simply says that, that, it, that God's grace instructs us or teaches us to say no to ungodliness. To say no to all that dishonors and displeases God. And so the tense here emphasizes an initial one-time denial where we deny ourselves, we, we forsake and renounce our ungodly lifestyle at the, at the point of our salvation, the point of our regeneration. But that must be followed up by a lifetime of daily self-denial. Anyone would come after me, Jesus said, he must what? Deny himself, 
take up his cross daily and follow me. And so when we're tempted to return to our, our old way of life, God's grace helps us learn to say what? No, I'm not going there. I'm not saying that. I'm not thinking that. I'm not doing that. And so he says he, he, he instructs us, God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And In other words, we need to be able to say no by the grace of God to our lusts, our passions that, that used to control us, the things that we wanted to do before we were saved that, that we know aren't what God wants us to do. We say no to those things. We, we deny ourselves those things. We, we deny the, the desire for pleasure and deny ourselves the desire for possessions or that, that desire for power, sex, money, fame. You fill in the blank. And so God's grace teaches us how to say no to ungodly worldly desires. But notice it also trains us to live in a right relationship with ourselves and with others and with God. Notice he says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, it's not enough to say no to ungodliness. That's the put off, right? You also have to put some stuff on. There's a positive. And so what's the positive? Or to live sensibly, which means just to, to live a self-controlled life. Righteously means just doing the right thing, being honest, being fair, being a person of integrity, and then being godly, which just means you fear God, you love God, you serve God, you, 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 you honor God, and He is your supreme devotion. God used to have no place in your life, and now he has first place in your life. That's what it means to be godly. And so he says the grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, the age in which we live, this is not natural. This is not normal. Why? Because we live in an age that is, that is controlled by Satan, and, and we live in an age that is bent on dishonoring God and, and drawing people away from Him. And so it is the grace of God that teaches us how to be in the world but not of the world. It's the grace of God that teaches us to live as aliens and strangers who abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against our soul. It's the grace of God that, that helps us not to be conformed to this world but be what? transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's the grace of God that allows us to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I didn't learn all this stuff at once. In fact, I'm still learning this stuff. Any, anybody with me on that? I mean, this is, it takes a lifetime to learn how to walk with God, how to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. It's an ongoing process. No one ever graduates from the school of God's grace. We're constantly learning and growing and becoming less and less like the world and more and more like Christ. But God's grace schools us. So God's grace saves us. God's grace schools us. Thirdly, notice verse 13, God's grace secures us. God's grace secures us. Verse 13 Again, notice the ongoing present activity of the grace of God in our lives. Looking, he says, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Looking for the blessed hope. 
And so the grace of God not only instructs us to live godly in our present ungodly world, but at the same time, it gives us confidence that our future in heaven is secure. And I think one of the evidences of God's grace working in our lives as Christians is that we live in anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that he could come back tonight. If you, if you get excited about that, that's an evidence of God's grace in your life. We, we know that before Jesus ascended back to heaven, he told his disciples he was going to go prepare a place for them, and then when he was ready, he was going to come back, and he was going to take them with him, and they would live with him forever. This is the, the blessed hope of every Christian, of every believer. In fact, notice chapter 3, verse 7. He says this, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the what? The hope of eternal life. And notice back in verse 13, I think this is interesting. Notice the, 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 the second reference to appearing. We, we, we had in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now we're looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Oh, wait a minute, I thought he already appeared. What is this talking about? This is talking about his second appearing, which is his second coming by god's grace we long to see christ in all of his glory because we know that when we see him as he really is what's going to happen to us we'll be glorified as well and and first john 3 3 says that everyone who has this hope fixed on christ purifies himself just as he is pure notice by the way we can't just skip over this this is so critical here he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who? Christ Jesus. This is one of the greatest proofs or clearest references to the deity of Christ anywhere in the New Testament. That Jesus Christ is referred to as our great God and Savior. And so what is Paul getting at here? I think very simply, in a world full of distractions, uh, desires, hearts that are prone to doubt, God grants us grace to maintain our two primary focuses as a Christian. You know what the two things we're supposed to be focused on as Christians are? His first coming, Christ's first coming, and Christ's second coming. He appeared, and He will appear. And so, by the grace of God, think about this. Those of us who are living in this generation, we have the unique privilege of living between the two appearings or the two comings of Christ. How cool is that? And so we look backward. We're able to look backward to Christ's incarnation, His crucifixion, His resurrection, by which we're justified and by which we're being sanctified. And while at the same time we're looking backward, we can look forward to His return when we're going to be glorified. Which just gives us confidence. It gives us assurance that, that the salvation that he began at his first coming will be completed at his second coming. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you, right, will carry it on to, to completion. And so the grace of God provides us with security. It secures our soul. Fourthly, God's grace separates us. God's grace separates us. Notice the first part of verse 14. He says, who gave himself for us, this great God and Savior Christ Jesus, he gave himself 
for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ gave himself for us. He he served as our substitute. He bore our sins on the cross. He died in our place. Why? To redeem us. to, To buy us back from sin. To pay the price. To free us from slavery to sin, that that was the the price of his own blood shed on the cross. And to deliver us, redeem us from every lawless deed, all of our rebellion, all of our disobedience against God's word, against God's law. And, and, And God's grace redeems us not only from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. How cool is that? And because of God's grace, sin no longer has dominion over us, which means we don't have to sin anymore, which means we can live pure and holy lives. And that's exactly why he saved us. It says he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I love how Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 5 when he was talking about husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's why God saved you. That's why God saved me. He wanted to have a beautiful, pure, vibrant bride that he could call his own. Notice it says uh, to purify himself a people for his own possession. In other words, God's grace has set us apart from everyone else in the world. In some ways, we are like the nation of Israel. We are God's special Chosen people whom he desires to be holy and blameless. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We have been bought with a price. We're not our own. And so we should strive to live holy and pure lives. And God's grace enables us to do that. We can't do that in our own strength. We need the grace of God. And then lastly, the last transforming effect of God's grace is that God's grace stimulates us. God's grace stimulates us. Notice the end of verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it is, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. In other words, God's grace makes us passionate to do what is good. I think another evidence of God's grace working in your life, in my life, is that we're enthusiastic about being kind to one another, serving one another, exalting the name of Christ, uh, building up His kingdom, seeking His glory. That by the grace of God, we should have an all-consuming passion and and zeal to work hard to promote and advance His kingdom and, and, and further the cause of Christ in the world. Now, I don't need to tell you this. I'm sure you know that there is a lot of confusion about the role of good works in the Christian life. What role do good works play in the Christian life? It says here that we're to be zealous 
for good works. Well, obviously, our good works contribute nothing to our salvation. We trust solely in Christ's work for us on the cross. But good works are the inevitable outcome or result of our trust in Christ's work. Amen? In other words, good works are the visible manifestation of true saving faith. If, true, if you're truly saved, it'll be evidenced by your life, by your, by your deeds, by your actions, by your words. In fact, look at Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says it this way. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. That's just part of being a believer. That you live a life that's engaged in good deeds. And if you're not, if your life is not engaged in those things, then it's probably because you're not a true believer. In fact, back in chapter 1, Titus 1.16, this is how Paul described false teachers who were clearly unbelievers. He said they profess to know God, but by their, what? Deeds, they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I think Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 really says it the clearest. That we are saved, right, by grace through faith alone. It's not of ourselves, right? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I didn't say that really good, did I? Really good? Really well. How's it go? You guys quote it. How's it go? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You got that memorized? For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. I feel better about that now. What's the next verse? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God created beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by works. We're saved for works. And I think that's a key understanding here. So God's grace, according to Titus chapter 2, verse 14, God's grace stimulates us to love and good deeds. And so we've seen here five ways that God's grace transforms our lives. And I trust that tonight they serve as a reminder of the ongoing impact that the gospel has on your life long after you're saved. The, the, the gospel is something that we need from the moment that we come to Christ until that moment we go home to be with Him. That the gospel of God's grace is essential to our daily growth in godliness as Christians. And I don't know where you're at in your relationship with the Lord, where you are in your growth and godliness, what level you're at in your growth and godliness. You might be just a baby Christian, someone that's just come to know Christ. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus, some of you, for years. You're very mature in Christ. But it doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian most of your life. All of our testimony, in one sense, is exactly the same. And we can echo Paul's testimony. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace. 
And Lord, we confess that most often when we think about your grace and how amazing it is, we, we think about uh, that in regards to our salvation, the fact that, that you saved us by your grace, which is truly amazing, but it's equally amazing to see how your grace continues to have an ongoing effect in transforming our lives as Christians and conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that you would take your word tonight and apply it uh, to our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you would help each of us to think about uh, just maybe one thing tonight that we can take home with, uh, take home with us and, and, and work on by your grace. And Lord, that we would never, ever take any credit for any good that, that we see in us or through us, but we would always remember that we are who we are by your grace and your grace alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.